Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her excellent new book, The Transnational Mosque, Architecture and Historical Memory in the Contemporary Middle East, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2015, Kishwar Rizvi, Associate Professor of the History of Art at Yale University, interrogates the interaction of history, memory and architecture by exploring arguably the most important sacred space in Islam, the mosque. By combining the study of religion, history and architecture in the most compelling of ways, Rizvi highlights the material and political significance of the mosque as a transnational symbol. While focused on the context of Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, the theoretical insights of this richly textured book extend much beyond the contemporary Middle East. In our conversation, we talked about the concept of the transnational mosque, the historicist desires and assumptions that often undergird projects of mosque construction in Muslim societies, the transnational mosque, religious identity and international politics, and ways in which mobile networks of architects and corporations reorient our understanding of what we mean by the Middle East. This stunningly well-written book is also aesthetically pleasing, populated with wonderful visuals and images. It will also make an excellent reading for both undergraduate and graduate courses on sacred space, the modern Middle East, Islam and architecture, and religion, mobility, and globalization. Here now is my conversation with Professor Kishwar Rizvi. Hello, Kishwar. How are you doing? Thank you. Very well. Uh, well, uh, Kishwar, this is such a wonderful book. Really enjoyed uh, reading it and about a very important topic that uh, uh, we don't know much about. So I really uh, thoroughly uh, enjoyed uh, this book and look forward to the conversation. Uh, we have a tradition on uh, new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always uh, biographical. Mm-hmm. where we're interested in the uh, narratives of our authors, of how they became scholars interested in Islam and Muslim societies. So could you share with us a bit about uh, how you became a scholar of architecture and someone who's interested in uh, Islam and Muslim societies? Could you give us a sense of the of your background? Sure. Um, so I grew up in a Muslim country in Pakistan um, and studied architecture, uh, both for my undergraduate as well as my graduate school, which is in the U.S., um, and I also practiced as an architect in Pakistan. And so it was interesting to me that um, my background was mostly in the sciences and so on. But um, one of the big gaps in my education, both in Pakistan as well as, of course, in the U.S. as an architect, were in terms of cultural history um, of the Muslim world, of the region of uh, in general in the Middle East or South Asia. It was a very politicized history that we were taught. Um, and so as time progressed and my learning increased, it was interesting that, that I knew so little um, about a place that seemed on the one hand very familiar and yet not. Um, so after practicing architecture for a while and learning a lot about European and American architects and architectural history, I went back to graduate school at MIT um, and studied Islamic architecture. So that that's the short answer. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, begin uh, with your permission, uh, Kishwar, with the title of the book, which is The Transnational Mosque, and then there is a subtitle also. Could you explain to us a bit about what is the Transnational Mosque? What, what, what does that category mean? 
Sure. Um, so the way in which I think of the transnational mosque, and I'll talk about the two parts of it, but in particular the transnational, I think, is, is the key question, um, really, is uh, the way I conceptualize it is that I'm looking at buildings, and in particular mosques that are state-sponsored, um, that are uh, built through government sponsorship, both in the home country, that is the country that is sponsoring them, but also within their so broader spheres of influence, if you will, um, that are then built as state gifts, ambassadorial gifts, I call them, or um, as, to solidify political alliances and so on. So the question then becomes that why use the word transnational and not global? for example, so I'm not limiting myself to one particular country, but really looking at networks um, within the Middle East. Um, because I, I, I think what is really key, and this is part of my argument, is that although we have these networks, they're in terms of ethnicity, they're in pilgrimage networks, they're political networks, and so on. Um, but at the center of all of them is this idea of the nation, which is the motivation, which is the driving force behind um, alliances, regional um, political alliances, religious alliances, but also in terms of the sponsorship of these state mosques. So I'm not looking at every mosque that is built. I'm looking at a very particular type of a building um, that is sponsored by a state. And um, as you note, um, I'm looking at four states. I'm looking at um, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, I'm looking at the Turkish Republic, um, at Iran, and the United Arab Emirates. And I use these as my four case studies for thinking about the transnational and looking at their state-sponsored mosques, both within their sovereign borders as well as beyond them. So let us uh, turn to one of the central conceptual arguments that you make in this book, a very fascinating one and one that you make very convincingly in the course of the book. Mm. And uh, in your own words, you write that Memory and historicism are at the core of the contemporary mosque design. This is on page 26 of the book. So mm. could you explain uh, this argument and in a broader sense how you explore this intersection between memory, history and architecture uh, in the course of this book? Sure. So if you travel anywhere in the Middle East or South Asia or actually anywhere in the Islamic world or whether large communities of Muslims, this could be in Germany, um, one of my case studies I'm looking at Germany, um, it could be in Central Asia, it could be in Japan, wherever we have large communities of Muslims, um, as well as large monumental mosques that are being built by their governments. Um, what the first thing you notice is that they're very historicist. That means that they're referencing earlier periods of Islamic architecture. So they're not modern in the way that we would think of in terms of, you know, design strategies. Right. So they really what they're doing is they're quoting the past. And it was it's curious to me and having somebody who does field work and actually much of my work is on the early modern. Um, it was curious to me to go through, you know, in Turkey or in Iran um, or in Pakistan and see these new mosques built in the 1980s, the 1990s up until today. Um, but they look as though they're from the 15th century. Right, so that's a very important question: is why is this most monumental, the most visible um, object, and an extremely important institution? Why is it made to refer back to the past? And that's my central question: is what is at stake 
and and I would argue it's history, right? It's this idea for Muslim communities today to think about history, um, whether it's the early years of the caliphate, right? So, so maybe a country like Saudi Arabia and Salafism in general is really going back to the earliest time in history, the beginning of Islamic history, the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and that's their ground zero, if you will. That's their beginning, right? Um, for Iran, interestingly enough, they start in the 16th century when Iran becomes Shiite, right, with the Safavids. So their architecture mimics 16th century architecture of Isfahan, right? So, so it's an interesting um, observation that almost all these mosques that are built from the 1980s onwards um, that are sponsored by these four governments are historicists. And that was really important for me to try and understand why is that and what is it that they're trying to achieve um, and what part of the discovery, uh, among the discoveries in the book is that for each of these four countries, the motivations are different and the way in which they sort of um, understand the historical origins of their, of their sort of nation are different um, and the way in which they deploy them are really quite different. So, you know, uh, it would be easier to say that they're all sort of, you know, thinking about history. That's true. But they're all thinking about it and manipulating it in very different and unique ways towards very different and unique um, visions of Islam, but also of their own national rhetoric. So let's come to some of those uh, similarities and differences by looking mm. at the particular uh, countries that you examine. Uh, let's begin with the countries of Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. Um, so um, I realize that you know that you have an individual chapter on each of these countries, so we will only be able to scratch the surface, so to say. But in terms of the highlights, uh, how have these uh, countries used architecture to articulate, as you were mentioning just now, particular visions of Islam and religious identity, and also to create uh, links and spheres of influence beyond their sovereign uh, boundaries? What are some of the major sort of similarities and differences that we find in these three uh, case studies? Sure. Um, so for Turkey, for example, I think um, this has been discussed very recently um, and it's very much in the public um, media and so on that, and it's being debated, of course, on the ground right now, um, is this rise of a neo-Ottomanist aesthetic, a political ideology, which, of course, the government sort of denies that they do not have these neo-imperialist, you know, ambitions and that's up for grabs. Um, but they, in their sort of um, commissions, and these are huge mosques that they have built in Turkey, the Turkish government, in Turkey, in Germany, um, Turkey, of course, but in Germany, in Tokyo, in Japan, um, in Ashgabat, in Turkmenistan, in Chechnya, and all of these really interesting sort of zones, there are a few things that are... Um, that become obvious. First of all, in terms of the choice of places that they're building their mosques. Um, often they are in this uh, sort of resurgent Turkic identity, so which is where the Central Asian republics become very important. There's a sort of imagined community, um, if you will, of uh, which sort of imagines itself as a Turkic ethnicity, right? So in Turkey, it's ethnicity more as well as this Ottomanism, the sort of highlight, highest point of Islamic rule in that in that country or in that whole region. In fact, you could argue in the Islamic world, you know, the 600-year-old empire, um, that becomes their sort of identity. Um, 
And I should say at this point that these neo-Ottoman mosques, so they're, if you've been to Istanbul, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like the Hagia Sophia, which was then copied to become the Suleymaniye, which was then copied to become the Sultan Ahmed. But it's this domed structure with pencil minarets. It's a very iconic image of Istanbul. And that image is then uh, exported. It's branded and then exported throughout um, Turkey's sort of as I mentioned, zones of influence and regional aspirations, if you will. Now, interestingly enough, Iran uh, picks up something else. Um, it's Shiism and religious um, pilgrimage networks that Iran sees as its sort of, um, if you will, tentacles, right? So you will see the renovation of the Sayyida Zainab in Damascus, for example, of Sayyida Rukayya, also in Damascus, of Sayyida Khawla, for example, in um, Lebanon, and so on. So most buildings that are sponsored by the Iranian government are in Shia states, right? So they're not going towards an ethnic Turkic linguistic identity, but a religious link um, to Shiism. And they are sort of then deploying their version of a classical um, architectural brand, which is, as I mentioned earlier, Safavid, 16th century architecture. And here, um, Isfahan maybe would be the sort of, you know, inspiration in terms of architecture. And in fact, you could be in Damascus and you could think you were in Isfahan, you know, because of the way in which the architecture completely emulates a particular um, style of architecture. Now, the Saudi government does something really interesting, which is in contrast to both Safavid and um, Ottoman styles that are appropriated by the Iranian and Turkish governments, respectively. Um, Saudi Arabia does an appropriative act, which is it will they will build monumental mosques um, that actually are not exporting a Saudi image, per se, but they assimilate. Um, and they will build something that is really responsive to the site. Um, so, for example... I talk about, and I, I, perhaps you're familiar with, of course, the Faisal Mosque in Islamabad, right? So there they hire a Turkish architect to design this very interesting tent-like, strangely abstracted Ottomanesque uh, architecture that is really responding more to Islamabad in terms of the marble and the siting and so on. If you looked at it, you couldn't really tell it was had anything to do with Saudi Arabia other than the name. And the fact that it's huge and all made of marble, right? Um, so each of these three countries has a very different, first of all, um, way of understanding who they are, right? And their own historical sort of connections. And then they have a very interesting way of then exporting their sort of architectural brand um, globally. Now, for of all of these, of course, Saudi Arabia is probably the most um Brand uh, builds the mosques, mosques. I think there are more than 200 in the United States itself. Um, but you couldn't really pin them down to a particular historical style. They're almost all historicist, but you, they look more like the place that they're built in. Um, so it, it, it's very interesting to see how each of them sort of has a design strategy and a brand um, and what they, what they do with it. Now, uh, coming to the uh, final case study, which is the UAE that you talk about, and you mentioned in the book that uh, the UAE presents a striking contrast and a counterpoint uh, mm. to the other uh, three cases. Uh, could you explain a bit how that is so, uh, and perhaps give some examples? Sure. Um, well, first of all, the UAE, of course, is the latest 
um, newcomer in the sort of League of Nations that I'm 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 discussing. Right, of of the each of them has a very long history. Um, whenever it is that they actually become nations or define themselves as nations and parliaments and all of that, of course, is another story. But um, all three of these countries, Saudi Arabia, um, Turkey, and Iran, have on the ground historical monuments, right, that are very, very old, whether it's the Mecca or it's Istanbul, Constantinople, or Isfahan, and so on, right? So they have this very deep history to draw from in terms of design, in terms of ideology, in terms of a religious vision. The United Arab Emirates comes into being really in the 1970s, right? Um, and it has a very different point of reference, first of all, in terms of its own identity, in terms of who they are, their collection of emirates. They're sort of, you know, um, there were no great big cities. These were, um, you know, mercantile communities on the Silk Road, on the sort of on the maritime Silk Road, and so on. So what is it that they need to do to create their national image on the one hand, and how can they deploy their monumental mosques and also museums, interestingly enough, um, in creating that vision. So the first step is to create an image, right? And what I talk about is that the earliest sort of national mosque there is the Jumeirah Mosque in Dubai, um, which actually looks Egyptian, right? It just, and, and there are reasons for that that many of the sort of, you know, Architects and engineers in the 70s, this, you know, the planner of Abu Dhabi, for example, were Egyptians. And so the builders of that mosque are, is an Egyptian firm based in Cairo, and they build a monumental mosque that looks like Fatimid or Mamluk architecture of Cairo. Um, and interestingly enough, that's copied all over. Um, but now the, the, National Mosque, of course, is the Zayed Mosque in Abu Dhabi, and that looks like the Lahore Mosque, you know, a Mughal monument, except it's not in red sandstone but in white marble, so it looks like a Mughal, you know, um, monument. So this, so what the UAE is doing is it's unlike the other three, which are sort of exporting their image outward, the UAE is bringing the world. Right to the Emirates and and using those their architectural language to create their own national identity. So I thought you know as opposed to a centrifugal movement, one is the centripetal one. You know, so bringing it inwards. That's one thing that sort of really um, shows the UAE as quite being quite different and distinct. Um, the second thing that I think is fascinating, and this of course has to do with the, with the demographics of the UAE, um, which has a very you know less than twenty percent of the population um, is actually Emirati, and almost everyone else is an expatriate or a laborer, or you know people are being brought in from all over um, Asia, Australia, um, the United the United States, Europe, and so on. Um, is that their mosques, their national mosques, and here I'm talking about the Jumeirah Mosque and the um, uh, Sheikh Zayed Mosque, um, both of them are um, are seen as um, cultural centers as well, which means that they open their doors at select times, of course, not all the time, but at select times of the day, they allow people to come in. You could be non-Muslim, um, and you could come on a tour and be given a very interesting sort of explanation of what Islam is um, and so on. So they use their um, pulpit, if you will, 
um, also for, for explaining a particular vision of Islam, and, and I would say it's a rather moderate, you know, uh, Islam that, of course, is obviously open to non, non-Muslims and so on. So it's quite unique in that way, um, and, and I think it was an important counterpart to the other three, um, other three case studies that I was looking at. Now, I want to ask a question about a very interesting theoretical point that you bring in uh, towards mm-hmm. the end of your book, uh, which has to do with uh, the question of mobility. And you talk okay. about these mobile networks of architects and corporations that traverse you know, national and geographic boundaries and so on. And you make the point, and I think a very enormously interesting and important point, that uh, these this mobile networks of architects and corporations that you examine uh, really reorients and brings to question our conventional understandings of what the so-called Middle East represents and what that means. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, say a bit about uh, about that theoretical contribution that you see your book making in terms of reorienting our understanding of the Middle East? Sure, exactly. And I mean, that's a really great point that you've picked up on because originally the name of the book, the title was going to be The Mobility of Belief. Um, and then it sort of evolved and, and changed into, because I was really fascinated exactly with this idea of mobility um, and how we conceptualize it today, but also how we conceptualize it in a way through the most immobile of of objects, uh-huh. which is architecture, right, or or urban space, which are so um, embedded I- I within their geogra- geographies, and yet they traverse both temporal and geographic. In these, in the case of these um, examples, even the images of architecture are mobile. So, you know, um, what I was trying to do was look at this sort of the meta structure of the mosque, but also then break it down into sort of the institution of the state, um, but patronage, um, and yet also of architects and corporations that actually build these buildings. And what you note is that there is everything is in flux. Everything is connected through these networks on the one hand, um, and also everything is mobile. Um, so, so I think you're absolutely right, and that mobility is, in some sense, intrinsic to the way in which I believe religion is expressed in the 21st century. Right, both religion, but also I would argue, um, statehood, is that um, for a country country like Turkey, um, now historically it would be that um, you know you would expand outwards, you know, organically. Um, from the center and you would expand through gaining land, you know, that was contingent to you. But now a place like Turkey and a country like Turkey can imagine itself being linked to the other side of Asia, right, as far away almost as China, and that would be its sphere of influence. Or on our side in Washington, D.C., is one of the biggest Turkish neo-Ottomanist mosques being built right in the center of our capital right here that you can conceptualize the world through these mobile networks um, of, of design practice, but also of a sort of reconceptualizing of our world, per se. And the agents that allow us to do that are multinational corporations, um, which, of course, uh, something that exists precisely because of the, you know within the mid twentieth century, and whether you're looking at you know oil exploration and things like Aramco, um, or you're looking at you know architectural firms like SOM, Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, um, that are you know 
that are multinational corporations that can sort of give you your product, whether you're in London or in Istanbul or in Ashgabat. Um, architects are similarly that kind of resource that can move in very interesting ways, um, and their expertise is equally um, mobile, and we can do that not just through technology, but just literally, I mentioned um, a few of the architects themselves are sort of heterogeneous in their identities, right, that you can be a Lebanese Christian uh, living in New York, and you could be designing um, the Ground Zero Mosque, right, uh, so, so that there are these mobility is really at the core of this idea of the transnational um, in, in my mind, but also in the way in which we really must think about uh, terms such as the Middle East, right, which were conceptualized uh, at the turn of the 20th century, so geographically contingent, so immobile, if you will. Um, but hopefully in, in, in a study such as this, we can imagine it also having possibilities that we may you know, troubled terms that are so geographically contingent, I would say, you know, these sort of post-colonial um, leftovers that we have, that we may trouble them a little bit and open them up and see what is possible um, in, in that sort of opening up of these, of the terms. So as we are coming towards the end of our conversation, Kishwar, could you please share with us uh, uh, what you're working on these days? What are some of the things that we can expect to read from you and learn from you in the coming uh, months and years? Sure, thank you. Um, well, one of them is a very direct um, offshoot, if you will, of this mosques project of the transnational mosque. And it's not a, going to be a sort of you know another five year project, but hopefully much sooner. Is um, I'm sort of focusing on uh, what I would say in the Gulf Arab states um, is a corollary to the national mosque, which is the national museum, um, as you know in Qatar and the UAE and and other Kuwait much earlier. Um, that there's been such a proliferation over the past 20 years of very monumental um, museums, sometimes they're franchises, like the Louvre and Abu Dhabi and so on. Um, and I'm really curious to think about them through the lens of the transnational um, and also to think of them as, in some ways, a counterpart, uh, maybe the flip side of the coin of the mosque the mosque and the museum, and what happens if we put them together, because I think they both, within the national rhetoric of these countries, um, play very important and in some ways complementary roles. They both are looking both inwards and outwards. Um, if we can think of the mosque as a particular kind of ideology, the museum presents a different one. Um, so that's a very immediate project that, it, that I want to sort of work on right now, and I am actually doing. So... Um, and I'm also moving back to the 16th century, <laughs> which is very nice. Um, so moving back to looking at um, Safavid Iran um, through different types of networks, actually. Mobility has come back very much into my work um, in conceptualizing the early modern. Um, so looking at the 16th century and looking at Iran within the lens of the, the sort of global networks that fed into it, but also beyond it. So that's the... You, hopefully you don't have to wait too long for either of them. But. 
So the Transnational Mosque, uh, Architecture and Historical Memory in the Contemporary Middle East by Professor Kishwe Rizvi, published by the University of North Carolina Press in Chapel Hill, North Carolina in 2015. Thank you so much, Kishwe, for your time, for this uh, wonderful book and uh, for this conversation. We really learned a lot and benefited uh, from reading this book and from our conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, Shirali, for this wonderful opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation. So this was my conversation with Professor Kishwe Rizvi about her brilliant new book, The Transnational Mosque. Please also join us next time for another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, be well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you.